gripping and stirring as its background of gallantry and conflict is this love story of a hard-bitten guy who knew all the answers until he met a girl who knew how to live and taught him how to love. Is there a wife, maybe? Well, is there? You know, you're about to wreck something beautiful. Don't you think I ought to know if there is? No. Nobody in this man's army can get himself in so much trouble as you in so short a time. Why, thank you. Comes naturally, you know. It's not funny. It's Bogart. Bold, brash, and in bad with the brass. You can do one of two things. You can put him for transfer right now. Or? Or you can stay here and not touch another drop. Not one. If I see you drinking or I hear about it, I'll have you court-martialed. The works. It's Bogart. Bold, brash, and blunt with Allison. You're a funny guy. Can't you say you love me? Oh, I think it's better to do it than say it. You don't go, do you? Why do we have to talk about it? Why do we always have to try to find words for it? The truth is that... that the that truth you... should never be told by lovers. When it is, the affair is over. I'll say it. I've never loved anyone. Not like this. Shh. Not this way. Allison in love. Bogart in action as he leads a battle circus, a fighting mobile medical unit to a dangerous destination. Heading for this area here. Well, this trail's closer. To the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob. You guys all know that by now. Uh, and this is a double feature episode in that we're going to be talking about two movies, two different segments, two fantastic guests. Uh, it is a Warner Archive double feature in that both titles are available from that fine institution, Warner, known as Warner Archive. We're going to be talking about the pre-code comedy drama Blondie of the Follies starring Marion Davies uh, with our pal Paul Spataro in a moment. But first, we are going to be talking about... About the 1953 uh, war drama Battle Circus, starring Humphrey Bogart as a MASH surgeon during the Korean War. And who better to talk about uh, a movie about doctors than our old pal, Dr. Ange. Hello, Ange. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I have to admit, I had never heard of this movie before you mentioned it to me, so uh, it was fun to watch. Yeah, this is, uh, I only heard about this movie in the context of, of course, it being MASH-related. As most people know, MASH is my all-time favorite TV series. I have a blog about it. I had a podcast about it at one point. And I was... I heard about this movie years ago, and I rented it back when I worked at a video store, and I didn't remember having much of a reaction to it. And I thought, well, I, I, I that was 20 years ago at this point, and I'm always willing to revisit a movie I haven't seen in 20 years because things change. Uh, and this, as far as I know, is this is like the only other piece of drama or uh, entertainment that is related to a MASH unit during the Korean War. I mean, there's the movie, of course, with the Robert Altman movie, and then there's the subsequent TV series. But this is the only other time in sort of any sort of popular culture where the, the a MASH unit is being 
uh, portrayed. Uh, like I said, this movie came out in 1953. It stars Humphrey Bogart as uh, the surgeon Major Jed Webb. It's directed by Richard Brooks. It also features June Allison, Keenan Wynn, Robert Keith, William Campbell, and, and some other uh, other cast members. Um, this uh, it, Basically, the story is it's set in Korea, made during the war. This is a love story of a hard-bitten army surgeon and a new nurse ready to save the world. Of course, the new nurse is played by June Allison. So, uh, Ange, what did you think of Battle Circus? Well, you know, it's hard not to, at least while I was watching it, compare it to MASH. Sure. Uh, I can't um, say that I'm as big a MASH fan as you, but I will tell you that it was on at 5 o'clock on the local uh, channels growing up, and it seemed like every day at 5 o'clock I watched it. So (laughs) I've seen every single episode, at least in my youth. Um, I certainly haven't seen anything recently. And so I thought it was very interesting to watch this. It's clearly got some propaganda pieces to it. He, uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, has some things in common with Hawkeye, but there are other things that are not like Hawkeye at all, um, which I thought was a little bit interesting. And, um, you know, I work in an emergency room. I'm not saying that an emergency room is like a mass unit, but some of the emotions that are played out um, in that super stressful uh, area uh, of a MASH hospital, I have seen a little bit in real life and sort of the maybe not so super stressful, but still stressful environment of the hospital. So I thought it was um, it was a pretty good movie. It really doesn't have like an ending, I would say. It's more like a slice of life of these right. people, um, which I think is probably appropriate given that the war was going on and, and who knew. Um, but, um, but overall, I thought uh, I'm very glad that you shared it with me. Yeah, uh, the original title of this movie was actually MASH 66, uh, and then the studio bounced that because they thought no one would know what that means. And if you watch the film, the opening shot is a big uh, close-up of the MASH sign, and it says MASH 66, and then down at the bottom it's just scrolled Battle Circus, and then it cuts to a formal title sequence. So the original, this thing originally could have been called MASH 66, would have been uh, kind of amazing. I'm of two minds about this movie. Uh, I think... The stuff uh, where Bogart is the surgeon and all the stuff about him being a surgeon in, in the MASH unit is really good and is, is pretty interesting. I mean, it's a Bogart movie. I mean, any Bogart movie is worth a, a look. But I find all the romance stuff with June Allison to be uh, really not good. <laughs> and um, I mean, I just gotta, I just got to say it. Bogart's character is a creep in this movie. I mean, he hits on... Uh, poor June Allison's character. She plays a character named uh, Lieutenant Ruth Megara, and she's new to the unit. And he just picks her out to hit on her, and he never lets up, even when she pretty clearly isn't interested. He just does. Ne- he never gives up. And I found that whole thing like I'm like, this is why we have sexual harassment laws <laughs> at this point. He just he is so creepy that I find I found, and that's that's really the the focus of the movie is is. The romance, and that that's the stuff I just found very troubling and sort of not fun to watch. You know, um, it's funny because he, the first time we see him with her, he does this speech that's sort of like the classic war is hell speech where he's like, people at home don't know, um, and there's no sleep here and there's no peace. And I'm like, oh, he's going to play like a battle-scarred and weary guy. And then he kind of likes Mac on her. And I'm like, that's pretty, that's pretty creepy, as you say, for him to kind of use the horrors of war as kind of his pickup line. And then it's like you say, throughout the whole thing, you you know, she hears that he may or may not be married. And um, she hears from other nurses that, oh, he likes nurses, you know, uh, 
as long as they're in the right position or something yeah. kind of ambiguous like that, that does kind of make you feel like, oh, he's kind of a lech. So, um, so I can completely understand that. Certainly, you could never get away with any of what he does uh, in this day and age, nor should you be able to. Yeah, I mean, his character, Major Webb, he drinks too much. That's the thing he has in common with Hawkeye, certainly. And there's a scene, actually, where he gets in trouble with his commander, uh, played by Robert Keith, for, for drinking too much. And there is, there's a sequence where um, June Allison's character feels sorry for him, and she sort of warms up to him. And then she, she corners him about, well, are you married? Back home, and he gets mad at her and says something to the effect of, "You get in trouble like a, the way a lot of women do. You talk too much." I was like, "Ay, <laughs> bogey, what are you doing here? You know, like what is that about?" And so that all that stuff is very strange. And again, I, I feel kind of churlish even saying this because she seems like a very nice lady, June Allison. But like, I find June Allison really boring as an actress. Like, yeah. I don't get why. I I don't. Okay. They're in a mass unit, and of course, when people are thrown together in this high-pressure situation and there's not a lot of people to go around, you're going to kind of, I guess, go after one another in a, in a I don't want to say dating manner. That sounds awfully quick. But in a, you know, there's going to be a lot of sleeping around with people you maybe wouldn't normally sleep with because you don't have a lot of options. Um, but, like, there's a lot of, like, other kind – and I guess the idea is Bogart has worked his way through the other nurses, and so – Lieutenant Megara is new, and so that's why he's interested in her. But it's like I, I just didn't see anything about June Allison that would make someone be like, "Oh my God, I can't get her out of my mind." Like I just couldn't, I couldn't buy that. And I feel bad because, like I said, June Allison, there's nothing wrong with her performance, and I've seen her in other movies, and she seems like again, like almost like a Doris Day type, perfectly nice woman. I just didn't get that Bogart would be like, just couldn't, you know? He, I don't know that that I was like, I'm not really buying this. You know, um, uh, it's sorry for me to say, but I've always thought her best performances were in the Depends commercials. You know, I mean, she's never really stood out to me as being um, uh, a fantastic actress. And here, um, I don't really quite understand why she would fall for him so easily. It almost seems from the very beginning she's kind of smitten with him. And as you say, his personality doesn't seem to jive with her personality. And I'll also agree with you, there are actually scenes in this movie where, you know, maybe a different actress would be able to give a little bit more gravitas to uh, to the scenes. And she comes off like a little bit, it's like almost too meek or quiet for the scene, right? You know, like the opening scene, she's walking through, they were just wounded on the ground outside of the hospital as they're trying to triage. And there's, you know, I'm like, boy, this is a powerful scene and she just kind of doesn't bring it. And then, you know, we're sort of jumping around, but there's that scene where... um, one of the Korean soldiers that they're actually preparing to help wanders into the operating room with a grenade. Right. And, um, and like they're in the middle of surgery and this sweaty, you know, POW comes in holding a grenade and she has to try to calm him down. And she sings, Mary has a little lamb to him. And then it just kind of dissipates. And so I can understand exactly what you're saying. It's, she didn't bring, um, uh, the energy or the emotion that I would, uh, hope to see from, a nurse uh, on a mass unit. Yeah, I mean, not all Bogart's co-stars can be Lauren Bacall, but I mean, I just feel like you could have gotten somebody with just a little more edge to her. That just she just seems, yeah, like you said, she seems so meek. I mean, that that inch, that one scene where where she lands there and she hands like some of the wounded a cigarette, which is kind of a nice bit. But I just I, I never bought these two as a couple. And and if that, if the movie is hinging on that, which it does, I mean, if you look at the poster, the main poster. You don't even have any idea that it's a war movie because it's just the two of them hugging. 
and there's no indication what this movie is about. So they're clearly pushing it as, you know, a romantic drama. So if you're going to push it as a romantic drama, you really have to have them as like a, a great couple. And I just didn't see it. Now, that said, I do want to talk about the stuff that I did like. And I liked all the other stuff. <laughs> all, all the stuff about him being a surgeon in, in the MASH unit I think was really good. There's a lot of great scenes. You mentioned that scene where the, the, the Korean soldier comes in with the grenade, which is a scene that they took, uh, late, they took out of this movie and put it in the MASH TV series. They did an, they did an episode where that exactly happens. So I was like, oh, that was interesting. I like uh, some of the details of the, like all the, this MASH unit. There's no uh, metal structures on the, on the MASH show. They had the operating room, which was an actual building with walls and a ceiling. There's none of that. These are all tents. Everything is going on in tents, uh, which is, of course, that much easier to bring down and take up. And we see the the unit bug out at a couple different points. Um, It's interesting that we really don't get a sense of the other surgeons. There are other surgeons in this unit, but we really do focus on uh, Major Webb. And something else I thought that was funny is that uh, at one point uh, while they're on the road, they get shot at by some, some North Koreans. And uh, Major Webb just pulls out a gun and starts firing. And I'm like, wow, that is definitely not Hawkeye. Because no. uh, Major Webb is just totally ready to kill a bunch of people. You're, that's, um, that scene stuck out to me because, you know, in MASH, you know, Hawkeye's the guy that's like, you know, don't let the bastard win. And they're like, who's the bastard? The bastard is death. I never right, want right. death to win. And, and he's a big pacifist. He thinks it's all stupid. And then as you say... You know, Borat just starts firing away and you go, boy, you know, I guess this is like a patriotic propaganda sort of movie and you want your lead star to, you know, be about how we need to be in this war. But it stood in such contrast to uh, Hawkeye that that's the first thing that I said. I'm like, this is not Hawkeye at all. Now, wouldn't that not be in violation of um, the Hippocratic (laughs) Oath? To, to be killing people even in war, right? Uh, yeah, unless you sort of – if you say that the Hippocratic Oath is only about how you administer medicine. Um, but uh, I think that um, – I think in war, uh, you know, the doctor shouldn't be picking up guns. I certainly would not. Right. <laughs> I mean it was like there's, there is no hesitation. Bogart just immediately picks up a rifle and starts firing and I just was like, whoa, wait a minute. OK. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um I mean, there is a lot. The film does have a real sort of documentary feel, which I like. There's no music. There's no. Uh, there's no music in this film. There's no soundtrack really until the end. I mean, all the scenes, like all the scenes where he's performing surgery, are just done with just the sound effects of the of the the scene itself, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there's a great moment where they're bugging out, and uh, Bogart has to burn some files. And apparently in the in the shooting of that scene, he literally sets his thumb on fire, which you can see in the film. Uh, he sets his thumb and he waves his hand really violently all of a sudden and he jerks it out of camera range. And it's even in the trailer. They even have the scene in the trailer. And apparently Bogart was none too happy that uh, the papers, I guess, were coated a little too uh, liberally with this fluid. And it just ran right up his hand and he set his thumb on fire. And Richard Brooks kept it in because, I mean, I guess it looked real. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of stuff. And so the the um, there's this great scene where they have to perform surgery on a wounded child, a wounded Korean child. And uh, Keenan Wynn is really terrific in this movie. He's got he's sort of Bogart's. I don't know. He's I don't want to say he's like the Dr. McCoy because they're both doctors, obviously. But he seems a little more humanistic than than Jed is. I mean, there's a great scene where another soldier refers to one of the Koreans uh, using a slur. Uh, I mean, like you say, he calls them a gook, and Keenan Wynn's character very firmly says, don't call them gooks. 
Like he just is very, and I, that's something again that it was used in the MASH TV. Like that was a word that Hawkeye was deeply offended by. And then it always struck me as a kid. I, that I keyed into that. And so I liked seeing that here in the movie. Yeah. Um, as you say, going back to the documentary piece, there were some great, like you actually see them raise the tent you know, where they show them pulling on the ropes and the tent pole goes up. And, and so there was something very real about that. That happened, right? That wasn't CGI. They actually raised the tent and bring the tent down. Um, so the, uh, And then when later on as they're trying to escape and they're like, oh, let, we need to put this truck on the railroad tracks to go where we need to go. So there was a lot of um, uh, sort of like this would, would be what it would be like to, you know, have to break down the hospital and leave and all of the things that you would need to do. Um, that scene where he burns the, um, the files, I thought it was very interesting. As you say, booze is a very common, uh, prop for him. Um, yeah. he uses booze. He sort of shakes the whiskey onto the files to then light them. It's like, he's never without that, which I think it's always hard if he's, if he's performing as much surgery, right. You know, you really have to have your wits about you, but, um, uh, there's a great line that he has later on where he says, uh, you look like you could use a transfusion and then hands June Allison a shot of booze, right? That's like his uh, medication, <laughs> um, which I thought was funny. But as you say, like uh, Keenan Wynn, his character is great. He's one of those guys that I'm sure uh, other people who don't know who he is watch the movie and go, oh, it's that guy, mm-hmm. right? Because he's like you know, sort of that sort of actor. But he gets some of the best lines, right? He, you know, That little boy needs to get um, a transfusion, and he's like, I've set up a, uh, you know, like a, uh, a blood transfusion, uh, you know, rally uh, so that everybody will donate blood so that he can get it. And then later on, as they've sort of left and they're getting the convoy out, you know, he has this line where he says, you know, this boy will be given to the Red Cross where he'll get good food and an education and there'll be no more war. So he is kind of, I think, trying to uh, bring this humanistic side of why they're, you know, in this conflict to begin with. I think there's even a scene where he's sort of helping them give typhoid vaccines Mm -hmm. to the villagers, right? So... There is this sort of propaganda piece to it where where they're saying like, hey, all of this good is happening to these poor indigent people because America is there. Um, But his is the strongest voice for that. It's interesting that you mentioned the propaganda angle. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right because this film was made while the war was still going. Yeah, you, you know, after there's that close-up of MASH, whatever, 66, you know, the, I don't know if you remember, there's text that says, this is a story about the indomitable human spirit. It takes place in Korea, right? So there is this kind of, you know, trying to get caught up in everything. Um, but Bogart is clearly flawed, right? This is not an Audie Murphy movie. <laughs> no. Uh, so it does kind of, you know, I guess, um, I mean, they didn't really lay it on thick. So I suppose that that's good. Yeah, I do like the scene where he said his commander, which is Robert Keith, uh, really tears into him about drinking. Uh, that's a that's a really terrific scene. Robert Keith is great in this movie. I'm only vaguely familiar with him as an actor. I saw him in a, a great little um, crime, film noir called The Setup, where he played a bad guy. He's terrific. And so I, that's all kind of uh, how I know him as this real kind of like a real heel, but here he's, he's just really stand up. He's a real stand up guy. Um, there's a great scene where June Allison comes to him and asks to be transferred because, you know, she can't deal with the relationship with Booger. Cause of course he won't leave her alone. And, uh, and Robert Keith sort of says, you know, 
no, I'm not really going to transfer you. You know, he kind of he tries to talk her down a little and saying, look, you know, look, there's other problems here. There's other things I'm going to deal with, you know, and he's sort of he's firm, but he's fair. And so I really liked him. Now, he eventually gets wounded and then that forces uh, Bogart's character to have to take over. And that's when they have to meet up with the nurses. Cause the, mer- the nurses have have been evacuated and they have gone on ahead and they have to meet up. And there's this whole final sequence where a truck has to wind its way down this cliff face. But, yeah, the idea of the propaganda is because. I think America. I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert, obviously, but I've done a lot of reading about World War II and the Korean War, especially because I find Max so interesting. Is that you know America had a, America really thought that all of the patriotism that came with World War II would just transfer over to Korea, and it didn't. It did. And people were sort of like, we're tired, you know, another war. Just, I mean, you think about how large World War II was. It was a world, you know, a, you know, the name World War II. And then we were in another major war just five years later. Yeah. You know, I mean, and so, yeah, this was idea of, no, no, this is a valuable thing. We're going to, and I just think America at the time was just not buying into this idea that, you know, we have to stop communism by proxy by fighting this war in South Korea. That's a little, that's very different than stopping Hitler. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this film really does kind of push that a little of like, no, no, this is a valuable thing. Now, of course, the Korean War ended the same year this film came out. Uh, so it didn't have a whole lot of time to be, you know, the sort of propaganda piece. Um, going back to Robert Keith, you know what I know him from is a great episode of the Twilight Zone called Masks. That's really oh yeah, that's right, that's right. From. He's in that yes, right where he has his his awful family. Yes. He's dying and he He's makes dying, them right. masks, yep. and then their faces become the masks. So that will always be the role that I know him from, and um, and he does have a brusque nature in that Twilight Zone episode that he brings here. But I think he has to he has to be that sort of leader in this sort of environment. If not, you know, chaos might erupt. So I do, um, and I do think that Bogart drinks too much for somebody that at any moment might be called in to try to perform life-saving surgery. So, uh, so I really liked that scene as well. I have never understood. I have watched every MASH episode thousands of times at this point, but I have never understood how they were ever able to allow any of the doctors to drink heavily because the whole idea was that, sur- that, that wounded could show up at any time. Yeah. So, so if wounded could show up at any time, how can you let Hawkeye and VJ get hammered? Because what happens if we wounded arrive? What are you supposed to do? Yeah, you know, I can only imagine that if you've got a staff that's large enough, right, and there were only like four operating tables that you could have four people on for twelve hours, right. and then right, and then then you have like a little bit of window that maybe. But um, you know, when you have three surgeons, <laughs> you know, it's like no, you better be sober, and you know, we we could wake you up at any time to sort of run in. So uh, I always question that myself. <laughs> Apparently, um, Bogart was not terribly happy with this final product. Uh, this was the second film in a row he had done with Richard Brooks. Him and Richard Brooks were, were friends outside of the film industry. Uh, they had previously done a movie about the uh, newspaper industry called Deadline USA, which uh, I have not seen yet. But apparently Bogart's reaction to seeing Battle Circus finished was, he said to Richard Brooks, um, let's not work together again. <laughs> and so, uh, and they didn't. Uh, unfortunately, Bogart only lived a couple more years after this, so he only did a couple more movies. But uh, yeah, he was, I guess, none, none too pleased with Battle Circus. I, I think that's probably a little bit of a harsh assessment. It, 
I, for all of my issues with it, the, the stuff with June Allison, the whole romance angle, the film really doesn't look and feel like any other movie that I'm familiar with, especially ones of the time. I know that I'm enamored of the whole setup of MASH more than the average person would be, but all of the surgery stuff to me is really well done. All the performances are really good, and it just I said because of the um, there's no music to sort of Mickey Mouse the scenes. It really does have a sort of documentary feel. Uh, I liked all that stuff, and I, I liked its humanistic view of uh, even the enemy. You know, I mean, even the 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 guy that pulls the grenade, who is played by um, it's funny Philip Ahn, who is an actor who later would appear on Mash. Uh, I mean, it doesn't even regard him as a bad guy. It regards him as confused. You know, he's the, there's a scene, the scene where they lower like a um, do you know what prop it is? They're lowering it to the next ray machine. They lower some sort of contraption over him while he's on the operating table and the camera all of a sudden has it from his point of view. And you can imagine it's a pretty scary looking thing that they're doing. I mean, if you don't speak English and you feel you're in an enemy camp and they're putting this metal contraption down over your head, it's pretty scary. So even that, they kind of go from like, yeah, okay, he's obviously handling things the wrong way because he's going to blow up everybody. But they don't regard him as evil as more of just like, no, he's terrified and this is what can happen when people are pushed to the limit like this. Yeah, I think it's an x-ray that they, they lowered down so that they could almost do like a body scan to look for right. grapnel okay. and things like that. Um, but it's as you say, this isn't somebody that was you know locked up in solitary that escaped. He was in line to get surgery, right? They were going to uh, they were going to provide you know medical attention to him as an enemy. So uh, so I do think there is this feeling that. Um, you know, he's not just a savage, you know, communist that wants to destroy everybody. He's a person, and you have to take care of him in that situation. Yeah, I, I like that stuff a lot, and that's one of the things I liked about the MASH TV series, so I was happy to see that here. And it's funny, in all the books that I've read about MASH, this film has never been mentioned. I've never seen Larry Gelbart or any of the people uh, that, are, that that worked on the show ever mention this as sort of an inspiration. So I don't know whether they never saw it or it just didn't really occur to them, but there was, there's enough here that I saw later on in the MASH TV series that figured that some of them had to have seen it at some point. So I said, I think it's a worthwhile uh, title. Uh, I mean, especially if you like Bogart, and who doesn't? Uh, it's, it's worth uh, searching out because it's, it's just a, it's an interesting little drama. Yeah, you know, and for me, I always like to see um, uh, these medical dramas play out to kind of get a sense about either where they are historically in medicine or whether or not things are portrayed right. And so to hear him use really antiquated uh, units of measure like grains of morphine and units of penicillin instead of milligrams, which mm -hmm. is everything is done now, I thought was interesting. And But really also this feeling at one point he's just completely weary and he just says, I just want to get ahead of the game just once. And sometimes that's something that you feel in my line of work where it's like, oh my gosh, the door is open. People are constantly coming in. Just once I'd like to feel like, you know, I've accomplished what I need to accomplish. Uh, so that whole feeling of kind of like stress about the uncertain nature of what was coming next, I think really kind of felt uh, – correct to me in terms of how they portrayed that i was going to ask you uh before we wrap up i did want i did want to ask you like is all the stuff within the the surgery scenes and all the stuff where they're actually dispensing medicine did that stuff read correct to you does it did it jump out of you it was like ah that's not the way you would say that or whatever or did it seem fairly well done no, it, it seemed pretty well done. You know, there's that one, you know, the surgery where they have to, you know, he has to crack the chest and do open heart surgery and give epinephrine. And uh, all of that stuff is pretty true to form for that time. Uh, and certainly the way that they talk about it um, 
certainly felt right. Uh, so that's part of, uh, for me, again, you know, at the very beginning, I said, I'm not comparing my work in an ER to a MASH unit, but that feeling of stress and how that can throw people who shouldn't be together together at times, um, I've certainly seen. All right, very cool. Would you recommend this movie overall? Like, I mean, it's not something I think the average, like you would say, go out and find this movie. Oh my God, it's a hidden classic because it's not. Uh, but do you think it's something that if you're said, if you're particularly like a Bogart fan, you would think it would be worthwhile to watch? I totally would. You know, I mean, many of my colleagues here are not into old movies at all. They don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So I don't know if I would tell them, I don't know if I would tell them, oh, there's a great Humphrey Bogart movie you need to see, Battle Circus, right? I would probably have 10 other ones, I would say, for the novice. But for somebody that's a fan, um, and I would say even for somebody that's a fan of the MASH television show, I would certainly recommend this as sort of like, sort of another, you know, through uh, a mirror darkly look (laughs) um, uh, at the Korean War, where the themes are sort of the same, but sort of played out a little bit um, differently. All right, very cool. And like I mentioned, this is title. This is a title available from Warner Archive. Uh, we here at the Film and Water podcast. I say we, it's just me, but we're here at the Film and Water podcast. Are big fans of what Warner Archive is doing, and this is a title that is available through them. So you can go to Amazon and pick that up. We'll actually put that link in the show notes. So uh, I think that's going to do it for Battle Circus. Uh, Ange, thank you so much for coming back. I always enjoy talking to you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This was a great movie to talk about. Awesome. So uh, everybody stay tuned. We're going to play some Pie Kiss promos, and when we come back, uh, Paul Spataro is going to be here to talk about Blondie of the Follies. And uh, So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hello listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I am the host of the Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. Secret Sagas of the Multiverse is a review and discussion show where I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts take on topics related to comic books, superheroes, genre fiction, movies, television, and much more. We look at comics and comic characters across the many different media out there, from original print source material to the recent renaissance of television, movies, and digital media. If you love geek culture as much as we do, then tune in to our semi-weekly podcast series. Episodes of this and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts can be found at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, the Pulp to Pixel podcast Facebook page, through iTunes or through Stitcher under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Man, you come right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Exploring the media multiverse of geek culture hey who likes wild dog who let the dogs out who let the dogs out no 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 i'm taking this podcast seriously there's no way that song will appear anywhere in the show or even the commercials i'm doing this right i'm fka jason of the silver and gold podcast on September 17, 2016, a new show will be appearing on the SNG feed. 
Wild Pod, a Wild Dog podcast is a mini-series covering the DC Comics character that is sort of their answer to the Punisher, Wild Dog. I'll be covering the original four-issue miniseries, the 1989 special, and various other appearances of Wild Dog. Watch for it at SNGPod.com or the Silver and Gold feed on iTunes and Stitcher. Vance, why do we even own that CD? Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves And we're back with uh, part two of this uh, Warner Archive-centric episode of the Film and Water podcast. And this time I have our pal Paul Spataro on to talk about a film called Blondie of the Follies. Uh, hey, Paul. Hey, Rob. What's going on? Very happy to have you here on Film and Water. Again, this is a, this, this film is called Blondie of the Follies. It stars Marion Davies, who some of you might be familiar with. Uh, she was sort of the real-life version of the character that, that was uh, sort of caricaturized in Citizen Kane. Uh, from the William Randolph Hearst story. And it's, it's, this movie is a sort of drama comedy. Uh, the basic plot is uh, Blondie, played by Mary Davies. She's a New York tenement dweller, and her and her friend Lurleen, they're best friends. When Lurleen makes the cast of a big Broadway show, she arranged for Blondie to join the cast as well. But the friendship goes awry when Lurleen's sweetheart, wealthy Larry Belmont, catches Blondie's act and falls for the fair-haired newcomer. Though she is attracted to Larry as well, Blondie spurns his attentions out of loyalty to her friend. But the attraction proves to be stronger than any of them could have imagined. Uh, this film is directed by Edmund Goulding, who directed a couple of interesting movies, including two films with Tyrone Power, The Razor's Edge, which is the first film adaption, adaptation of my favorite book of all time, and then another film with Tyrone Power called Nightmare Alley, which is a truly insane movie. I have got to talk about that on the show here at some point. But anyway, it's directed by Edmund Goulding, along with Marion Davies, as far as uh, Robert Montgomery and uh, this is Jimmy Durante, the legendary Jimmy Durante, is in this movie, and Billy Dove and uh, Douglas Dumber, a lot of character, a lot of Zazu Pitts, a lot of famous actors from the, sort of the pre-code, just silent slash early talky era of Hollywood. So, uh, Paul, what did you think of this movie? Well, uh, I had never heard of this before, and yeah, I gave it a shot when you, you threw it out there. I said, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. Let me give this a shot. And the first, my first thought was, as I was starting to watch it, is this fits into a category of movie that you've talked about in the past, where it's a different era of filmmaking, and you kind of have to watch it differently than movies oh, yeah. now, because the dialogue is very different. the The way that they the way that they present the dialogue is even very different. They talk very very fast yeah. <laughs> as, as as they come up with their ideas the the editing is different everything about it is just a little different and it made me have to watch it more closely 
And I found it to be an interesting character study. I really didn't see too much in the way of comedy in this thing, to be honest with you, uh, with the exception of the, the, the one scene with Jimmy Durante, which, you know, clearly they were uh, spoofing uh, some, some things. Yeah. But other than that, I thought, I thought it was much more of a drama, and I thought it was much more of a, uh, a statement on what you're willing to do to get ahead in life and what the repercussions of that are. So I did see it as, as having some, you know, some real meaning to it when you broke it down. Overall, it, I can't say it was the most entertaining movie. No, yeah, no, I would agree with that. It, it is, it, it's very slow-paced. I mean, again, these films kind of were, this is, this is just after sound had come in. Uh, you know, vaudeville was still like a preeminent art form. I mean, the, I, I, this film has, the, you said the, con, you're talking about context, yeah. I mean, it has a very specific context of like, there was this fear of like going away to the big city, you know, or not to the big city, but like going away and getting sort of like, your daughter or your son would get sort of caught up in this sort of world of entertainment. And like, because the father here in this movie, he's constantly scared that his daughter Blondie is going to kind of get sucked into this horrible, immoral world. And they sort of present the world of vaudeville as like, you know, it's full of kind of people of loose morals and a bad character. And I saw a lot of that in the movies at the time, which is that kind of fear of like this young, innocent waif is going to get ground up in the gears of entertainment, which is kind of an extraordinary thing that even back then, even in 1931, that was still a fear. That was like a, enough of a fear that you could make it the plot of a movie. Well, you remember this is, this is during the Depression, too. This is in the true. heart of the Depression, yeah. really. So the haves and the have-nots... There's, there's even a huger gap then than there is now. So I could see where the have-nots would be fearful of the, you know, of what somebody might come up to if they all of a sudden are in the group with the haves. And I think even that's presented a little bit when when uh, Lurline first takes Blondie in. One of her first things is don't talk about you know the past with in front of these people. You know, don't talk about when we lived in the tenement and everything because she doesn't want to present herself as as being you know somebody who. Is, is of a you know a lesser stature, yeah, and there's an embarrassment to that almost. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Again, there's there's that that fear of like poor people have to hide that they were poor because they don't they feel like it's you know they, it's a indication of low character or anything like that. And yet, you know, we see that you know the father cares very much for for Blondie and everything, and the people that run that they're in the vaudeville show are not bad people either. You know what I mean? Like once we get to know them, I mean they have. You know, there's a lot of Blondie's a little overwhelmed by all the things that are that are happening to her. But I mean, they're not bad people either. It really does try to present both sides. Both both groups are fearful fearful of one another, but they're not. They're neither side is presented as like bad. You know, like no. it's like oh, she's escaping a bad time and going off with these better people. No, her family is loving and caring. They're scared for her, and they're a little controlling here and there. But you again, you can understand this is the Great Depression. As you said, this is the Great Depression. You don't want your daughter to disappear because she's on the on the hunt for a better life, but you don't want her to get caught up in something that's you know that's going to like ruin her life or make her you know make her not a good person. I guess. Well, I thought the actor that played the father, James Gleason. I thought he was the MVP of this movie. He's terrific. Yeah, he was a great actor. I thought his actor, performance yeah. was tremendous. I thought he really conveyed that love for his daughter, the concern for his daughter, when he finally lets her go with his blessing. But you could see he's got all sorts of misgivings about it. And then, you know, he's clearly the person she cares most about because he's sickly. They never really exactly let on, you know, what's going on with him. Something with his heart, I guess. But yeah, then, that's and, right. and eventually sort of he passes it, away, yeah. and yeah. you know she she's not willing to compromise her morals the way uh, Lurleen is. You know the movie starts out that Lurleen is leaving to go seek this better life, and basically she's willing to do so. You know 
by whatever means it takes to get the you know the right person to back her and and Blondie isn't quite willing to you know to give in to her, her morals that way until eventually she does but then that that results in her ultimately I guess she sustains a compound fracture they never really make it clear <laughs> yeah what what exactly happens but she injures her leg and she has to leave the show circuit and goes back home to a family and then eventually Robert Montgomery comes and rescues her again with this, you know, panel of doctors who say they can fix her leg. They have to re-break it and put it <laughs> together the right way. And then she's going to be totally healed. And then he asks her to marry him. And they all live happily ever, ever, ever after at that point. So ultimately, without giving in to her, you know, without uh, compromising her morals, she ends up, you know, in that same place. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure exactly what the moral of the story is supposed to be. <laughs> it's definitely a study of, you know, you know, do you compromise your morals or not, and what happens if you do. But it, as you said, it, I think they go out of their way to kind of present both sides, so they never really give you a moral to the story that she's better off that she didn't, or that she was worse off when she did. Right. Um, yeah. One thing worth mentioning, and I did want to get into this. This was part of the thing that interested me when Warner Archive offered me some titles to review was this one has Marion Davies. And uh, the reason that's even significant to me is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Marion Davies was in real life the mistress of William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper tycoon. And of course, William Randolph Hearst is the loose... Uh, you know, real life inspiration for Charles Foster Kane, Orson Welles's Citizen Kane. And in Citizen Kane, there is a character played by Dorothy Cummingor, Susan Alexander Kane, who is the mistress of Charles Foster Kane. And so everyone, when Citizen Kane came out, said, oh, well, that's clearly meant to be Marion Davies. Now, in Citizen Kane, Susan Kane is presented as really having no talent. She, she supposedly tries to be an opera singer, but she's horrible. She, she's, she can't do it. And there's a whole section of Citizen Kane about how Charles Foster Kane is determined to make her an opera star when everyone knows she's just awful. And apparently that was something that Hearst was very personally insulted by in Citizen Kane because they felt that they were going after Marion Davies, who was good. Marion Davis was talented. She's good in this movie. She has a light touch. She has a light community. There's a, there's a line where she's walking down uh, like a whole row of uh, extras in costume, and one of them has this ridiculous hat on. Like it's a hat. It's like the hat is the width of like a hula hoop. And she says something like, nice hat. And, I mean, the way I'm saying it isn't funny. But it's like the way she had has like a little lilt in her voice. It's really charming. And so Marion Davies was actually pretty talented. Now, her career didn't really pan out. She didn't become the big star that I think they thought she would. But but she was decent. And, of course, Hearst was like, how dare this whippersnapper, Orson Welles, insult my girlfriend. And, of course, Orson Welles' defense was, well, I, it isn't supposed to be Marion Davies. You know, like the, his defense was always, no, this movie is not your life story. It's an inspiration. You, know, you, you inspired the story, but it's not your life story. And one of the ways that my story diverges from your life story is that Susan Cain isn't good when Marion Davies is, was good. So both of them use that as sort of a pivot point for exactly the opposite argument from one another. Because and mm-hmm. and, and, in, and over the years, people have forgotten who Marion Davies is. And I think anyone that is 
sort of loosely familiar with her probably has a negative association with like, oh, she was that mistress, that terrible actress. <laughs> no, she was pretty good. And Warner Archive has been putting out her movies, most of which have, again, have been forgotten because they do come from that very early era of Hollywood. But just ju- judging by what I see in Blondie the Follies, she was pretty good. Yeah, I, th- I thought she, she did a pretty good, perf- you know, gave a pretty good performance in this particular movie. Uh, also, I, Robert Montgomery, I had thought I had seen him in quite a few things. But then when I looked over his filmography, I think not so much. Uh, the one I, the one that stands out in my mind is uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Yeah. And he was in They Were Expendable with John Wayne. I think that's oh, yes. another, okay. another yeah. really big one. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of went on to become a Hollywood leading man. I, uh, he, I don't think he ever quite became the huge – he's in a movie called The Lady in the Lake, which is a movie entirely set uh, where, the char- where the camera is a character – so uh, the, all the other actors are constantly talking to the camera. It's a surreal experience if you ever get to watch it. It doesn't really work, but it's it's a it's a it's, it's worth checking out just for the sheer novelty of a whole movie done in first person. Uh, and he starred in that, and he I think he directed it too, which is even yeah he did he started and directed in it. So it's a very unusual thing. But he's good here. I mean, he was kind of a light comedian kind of. He could do drama obviously because he did some other things. But he he had a, he had a similar touch as Mary Davis is kind of like. You know, he could deliver lines in a sort of Cary Grant style and do, you know, he was a good romantic lead. He was a handsome guy. So he fits in quite well here. And you, you know, he's, you could see why both Lurleen and Blondie would be attracted to him because he's just kind of like a classic handsome leading man. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And then, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm saying, where's Jimmy Durante in this thing? Right. Did, did I miss him? And then eventually there's the scene where he basically takes over. And, and it's just kind of, it, feel, it, it feels a little forced, mm. to be honest with you, that old scene. Where they're, uh, what was it they were uh, spoofing? Wuthering Heights? I think so. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, it, it, this Jimmy Durante scene reminds me a lot of the first movie with um, Abbott and Costello. I don't know if you ever, it's called One Night in the Tropics. Which is this whole romantic comedy that stops dead cold. When Avin Costello walk onto the scene to do like who's on first, mm-hmm. and then, then the movie, the, the rest of the movie picks up again after they're done. Like they, it's like why are Avin Costello in this movie? Because it clearly has nothing to do with them. And it, I think it had that kind of vaudeville thing where it was like, oh, let's bring on a famous comedian to come do a bit, and then he just disappears. And well, okay, then I guess the movie's going to resume again. It, it's that's a very early nineteen thirties, mid thirties style, and you have to kind of just sort of roll with it. Well, if, if you and if you look at it, you know, in a lot of the comedies of the time, you know, and, and I think of, you know, early Abbott and Costello movies, which I guess would be more in the forties, yeah, or uh, the Marx Brothers movies, they would always have this interlude where there'd be a musical yep. piece put in there, yep. you know, whether whether it was Harpo playing the harp or Chico playing the piano or the uh, what you call it, the uh, I can't. I hate when I can't when I lose the words. But what was the the sisters on in the Marx Brothers movie that came out and sang? Well, in the Abbott Costello movies, it was the Andrew in the Abbott sisters. Costello. That's right yeah, now, that's right. yeah. The Andrew sisters would come out and do Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy or something. They'd, they'd be in the army, and all of a sudden, the Andrew sisters would come yep. out and sing. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, I now, think movies were still kind of reflecting vaudeville a little. I think at that point, and so you had kind of had that different acts would come on stage. You know, there would be a singer and a comedian. I think movies were still still following that that template because they weren't realizing that they were going to become, of course, the preeminent art form in the country. They were still new 
then, and so it was like it was much more like I mean, yeah, like that's one of the reasons like my favorite uh, Marx Brothers movie is Duck Soup, is because Duck Soup doesn't have any of that stuff. It's just the Marx Brothers being crazy. But they're, well, they, they're, do they're, have, they do have the uh, the musical to war. Uh, but that's scene in that. right. But that's Gracho. I mean, Gracho is singing it. It's it's not. Well, okay. I'm trying to remember. Is there a musical number in that movie without the Marx Brothers? Not that I can recall. Right, okay. That's the only scene I can think of. You know, well, I mean, they do break into Hail Fredonia, but that's right. more of a comic effect. Right, than exactly. Else. But yeah, the March Brothers movies would cut away to this like Zeppo, you know, singing romantically to somebody. You're like, who cares? Get, go back to Groucho. What are you talking about? So, but uh, that was just that was a trope of the times. I'm just thinking like one of my favorite movies is uh, Babes in Toyland or March of the Wooden Soldiers, and there's even the scene in there where Tom Tom has to sing to uh, to Little Bo Peep. Okay. I don't know if you're as familiar with that. But I've never seen that movie. I'm not a Laurel and Hardy guy. I've never. Uh, I've only that's, that's seen one of my childhood other, favorites. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I, I mean, for comedy purposes, I would recommend it highly. Their performances, are, I think, are still hilarious to this day. Yeah, Blinded the Follies. It's like a nice little trifle. Uh, Warner Archive is, is is amazing that they have found a way to sort of monetize these things and they can find the audience for, for these for these films because, again, I think there's probably a very small group of people that are interested in obscure comedies from their early 1930s. But, again, if you like this kind of stuff, it's a fun little it's a fun little story and it's definitely a, a time capsule of the time. A time capsule of the time. What a dumb statement. It's a, it's a time capsule of what, you know, Hollywood and what life was like in 1931, and as you said, like when the yeah, absolutely the heart of the depression, and it has that story. So it's a fun little movie. Uh, if you ever see it, like in a library or something, and you like that kind of stuff, I would absolutely be worth checking out. It's like it's only like 90 minutes, so it's a it's a fun little fun little trifle. So, uh, Paul, thank you for coming on to talk about this, and thank you for being willing to to watch the movie. I, I went out and looked around and see who was interested in reviewing these Warner Archive titles with me, and some of them are pretty obscure. So I appreciate you taking the time to watch the movie and, and sit here and talk talk about it with me oh no no problem at all it was my pleasure i you know i'm a fan of old movies and like i said well i can't say this was fun to sit and watch i do like to try and get a feel for movie history and everything and i thought this really was as you said kind of a time capsule and it it, of what movies were like when they first started with the talkies and also a a time capsule because it took place you know it was of its era, it wasn't wasn't a fantasy or anything that took place in the past or the future or anything. It it took place dead when the movie was made, and and it was very interesting to watch. I, you know, from a historical perspective, I would definitely recommend it highly. All right, very cool. So, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the Two True Fre- Two True Freaks Network, where I am the co-host of various shows, including Back to the Bins, Keep Them Flying, Listen to the Prophets, and Is It Jaws? Great show. Well, since you've guessed it on it, I would have to say yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, those are all great shows. You guys should all check all those out. If you want to follow this show, it's over on Twitter at Film and Water Pod, and then the shows itself, and you can leave all comments on the threads over on the website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So, again, Paul, thanks so much for coming on. We'll be having you back soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next week, that's a wrap. When I got into this war, I had a very clear understanding with the Pentagon. No guns. <laughs> I'll carry your books, I'll carry a torch, I'll carry a tune, I'll carry on, carry over, carry forward, carry Grant, cash and carry, carry me back to old Virginia. I'll even Harry carry if you show me how, but I will not carry a gun.